0: Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller and you're listening to the Real Life LA Podcast, coming to you from the Southern California foothills town of Glendora, California. We're a church for everyone and we exist to lead lost people to Jesus, building a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you, opens your heart, and shows you how to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Good morning. Welcome to Real Life. I'm Jim. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, It is exciting to be in this season of the life of Real Life. If you are new this morning, if you're here for the first time, or if you're watching online for the first time, we've got some exciting news coming up in the life of our church, don't we? In about four weeks, we're going to be worshiping in a new building. We will say goodbye to our Yeah. We've been in this school for two and a half years now. We're going to say goodbye to it. We're going to say thank you for these days. We're going to move into a new building that we call Home for the Foreseeable Future. And you all have been so great about already jumping in and helping with all the things that needed to be done over there. Thank you for all of you who worshiped with us on the first Sunday that we rented it over there. Thank you for member of our church who just this week said, hey, I work in refrigerators. I'll bring you a gigantic refrigerator and freezer for the new kitchen. And honestly, it's this big across. Like, I fit inside it. And uh, I tried. And uh, so it's so great that somebody just said, hey, I'm going to bring a fridge by. And there it is. Uh, Somebody called up and said, hey, I'm going to send my gardener down. He's doing my yard. I'm going to send it down to spray for weeds in the front. And that got taken care of. They're painting trim around it today, so it looks great. Uh, Wonderful things are going on. Thank you for... um, For the uh, police officer in our congregation who mentioned, I used to be a plumber, and sure enough, he was down there and fixed some toilets and uh, took out a water fountain that stopped working in 1975 and uh, capped it off. And so great work is already being done, and thank you for all of you who have helped uh, make that happen. Uh, I will tell you about the biggest need we have right now. We need to have Easter services, and Easter is coming up on April 21st, uh, and we're going to have three services at 7, 9, and 11 down there. We're going to baptize at least eight, maybe 12 people that morning in the baptismal pool that's built in the courtyard there. We're going to have baptisms that morning. We need to baptize people, not just those. We need to baptize more after that. Uh, If you've never been baptized before, Easter's a great morning to do it, uh, and that's coming up. But we need to worship on Easter morning, and here's the deal. Last Easter, Easter last year, we had 900 people come to church that morning, there are not 900 seats in that building. There are not 400 seats in that building. We're not going to fit. We're not going to fit on Easter morning. So here's what we have to do. There's a sanctuary that we'll worship in at three, three hours, and then there's a chapel, and we're going to worship in there at three hours also. And if we have worship in two rooms at the same time, I think we might all fit in the room. So I want you to come. I want you to love one person enough that you invite them to Easter services. I want people who are being baptized and their families to be able to come on Easter. In order to do that, we have to worship in two rooms at the same time. And by that, I don't mean overflow. It's not an overflow room. We're gonna have worship in this room with a band and a host pastor. We're gonna have worship in this room with a band and a host pastor. Same thing, two two rooms, same time. The only thing that will be video fed is the sermon. So in one room, there will be a person standing up front, probably look a lot like me, and, uh, and I'll be in that room. And in the other room, there'll be a video screen up front with a person on it, probably also looks a little bit like me. All you got to do is squint. It looks like the same. And, uh, and so we're going to have worship in two rooms at the same time, starting on Easter and then continuing thereafter. Because if we want to continue to love people in Jesus' name, you always have to have an empty chair. If, if a church is absolutely full and there are no empty seats, the church has failed, It's kind of ironic, but if there are no empty seats, the church has failed because our mission is to love at least one person enough that we introduce them to Jesus. And if every one of us is on mission, we need a lot of empty chairs. And so after Easter, we're going to keep worshiping in two rooms at the same time every single Sunday, and that's going to give us room to invite our friends in. So this is what we're doing. A couple of weeks ago, we gave out pledge cards uh, to you. If you were there, you got one. If you didn't get one and you want one, you can pick them up at the welcome table outside on the patio today. Uh, and this is just a way of saying, you know, God has blessed me. God is calling me. God is challenging me. I want to support this move into the new building. Uh, there, the kinds of things we have to do are, for instance, all the equipment that we've been using since the very beginning has been borrowed. The the second week that we met as a church, Randy showed up and said, You can borrow all my equipment. Now, borrowing without ever returning things is called stealing. And hopefully churches aren't doing that. So we got to give Randy his stuff back. He's loaned it to us for over two years, and it's taken a lot of wear and tear from us. We have to give that back to him. And just to buy the equipment that we have borrowed is about $45,000. So that's just to replace what we have now. Then we have to worship in two rooms, which requires wires and soundboards and lighting boards and new lights, all that kind of stuff. So we figure it'll take about $160,000 to buy all just the tech equipment it takes to get that place fully operational. And then when you add things like if you'd rather sit in a chair than on the floor, when you add the other things that you have to buy in, we think it'll be about $250,000 to make the whole thing work to move us all in. So if you want to help with that, grab a pledge card today out on the patio, and it says on there, bring it back by April 7th, if you would, and we'll, uh, we'll collect those and get ready for the move-in bear in mind, as we do this, we are building for the future of the church, not the future of the building. So if we move out of that building one day, we are installing everything so that it can be taken back out again, down to the light fixtures. We are installing them so that they can go with us wherever we go. We're not building for the future of the building. We're building for the future of the church. The only thing I can't promise we'll take with us is like paint, because when you scrape that off a wall, it's hard to reattach it to another wall. So that stays. But the rest of it goes with us. uh, And so that's, uh, that's what we're planning on doing. So thank you for all of you who have helped with that, or contributing to that, or praying over that, uh, I'm looking forward to the days that are uh, coming. So three more Sundays after today in this room, and and then we're off. Then we're off. Um, Thank you also, one more thank you, thank you to all of you who are going to Mexico this coming weekend to build a house. We figured we don't want to just build a house of worship for for our church, we want to build a, a, a house for a family that serves in a church in Mexico. There's a church planter down there who's planted 39 churches so far, a pastor who started 39 churches, and we're building a house for one of their church workers. And so we're going to do that at the same time that we're planning on our move into our new home. Uh, So thank you to all of you who have prayed for that and given to that and who are going. So pray for that this week. We leave Friday, we come back Sunday. Short trip, you can put up a house in a weekend. And so pray for that trip as as it comes up on us. All right, good? All right, let's take a minute to pray. Uh, Pray for somebody uh, who uh, just this morning told me that uh, she's been diagnosed with cancer. Pray for that battle, that's a a challenging one. Surround that one in prayer. Uh, Pray for families that are struggling with somebody who is off far away and they care about them and the person living far away is going through a hard time and they feel like they're far, far away. So pray for, pray for family members who, you know, when that's on your heart and on your mind, it's hard to concentrate on anything else. So pray for those who are, who are praying for their families uh, and for all your needs. Let's, let's take them now before the throne of God. Father, I thank you that you love us and that you call us and that you bless us, and that you surprise us. Surprise us this morning as we open up the Bible, as we open up your word to us. Surprise us and challenge us and encourage us. God, through your word, teach us what it means to follow you. Teach us what it means to be your disciples, to walk in your footsteps. And God, as we do so, more and more help us to look like you. Help us to be little imitations of Jesus walking in this world. Challenge those of us here who who have stood at a distance from you, who have not drawn close, challenge us this morning with the reality of your presence. May we not be able to walk away from you comfortably. And for those who are hurting, for those who are broken, God, forgive our sins, set us free, and then take the weight of our worries off our shoulders. We place those before you and trust that you are the good God who watches after us. And so now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. All right, let's get to it. Uh, I like to read the news, particularly when it comes to issues that have to do with ethics. You know, fancy that as a pastor. Ethics, morality is fascinating to me because it's the place where the secular world and the religious world intersect, right? People outside our doors who don't believe in God, hate God, hate the thought of God, hate religious people, nonetheless have strong opinions about right and wrong. And that's kind of an interesting world, because if God isn't there, you're going to have a hard time explaining where your right and your wrong come from. If your ancestors just bubbled up out of a mud puddle millennia ago, it's hard to explain how morality got to be part of the equation. It's hard to explain where morality comes from if there's no God. So when, when moral issues come up in the news, I hone in. Those are interesting conversation pieces. And one that's been in the news recently, and you've, you've seen it as well as I, is a certain scandal surrounding college admissions. Right? It attracted a lot of attention. If I have the story correct, there were certain people who sort of cheated to get their kids into colleges, even some impressive colleges. And they cheated in some cases by having a guy come to, to proctor the, the admissions, the uh, standardized tests, tests like the SAT, and cheated and took the test for the students. And then there were some people who took pictures of the students dressed for sporting teams that they weren't on to make their resumes look better and they they created this this scandal that actually got some some students elevated into some elite colleges who had not earned their way in and this provoked all kinds of reaction in the population i mean if you want to know if you want to know how how snobby America can be. Just follow Twitter. You can see how self-righteous we can be. Just follow what we say on Twitter. And I got kind of, got kind of amused by churches because I know there are pastors all over the place last weekend and this weekend who are going, shame on you, shame on you, America. You know, all your, and look at, look at humanity. Is it a surprise that people are broken? Like, if you don't know people are broken, where have you been? Like, have you, did you live in a cave until now and you just came out like, oh, everybody's a mess? Yeah, duh. I mean, Look at yourself in the mirror for a while. I mean, honestly, people are born broken. The story is, the story is and this isn't, just, this isn't just an experience. This is what the Bible says. It isn't that you're born innocent, and then you get, get stronger and stronger, and then one day you start doing things wrong. You come off the factory line broken. All of us, we are born broken. And then we're born in a broken world, and we go around breaking it worse and making it worse. And that's the story of humanity, that's what the Bible says about humanity, and that's what all of us have experienced. So it's kind of funny when a scandal breaks out, and everybody gets all righteous shame on you. We're like a self-righteous Oprah, you get some shame and you get some shame. Everybody gets shame. right? It's kind of a joke. Because, because we all know humanity is broken. I think the, the, the reason this one caused the self-righteousness of us to well up was a few things. It was, uh, it was elitist, so it was people who were already advantaged getting more advantage, and that, that sort of made people mad. And for every kid who got into college unfairly, somebody else was excluded. I mean, somebody was really robbed of an opportunity by this, by this cheating, so that gets us really mad. And, and it was a scheme, right? It was not a crime of passion. It was something that was coldly calculated and figured out, and that makes us really mad too. But I think behind all that, I think behind all that, what ought to be bothering us is that this scandal is a mirror held up to American culture because this is the values of America. We value material success more than moral success. What ought to offend us is that this is not a few they out there, this is we in here. If I took a survey of all the kids in our Sunday school classes this morning and said, do your parents care more about what grade you get in school or whether or not you believe in God? I'm not sure what results I would get. They're not taking that survey this morning. Don't get nervous. They're not doing it. But I'm not sure if our kids hear more from us about what kind of grades they should be getting than they do about Jesus. And and so this this is actually a mirror to the American culture. And I'll tell you what. You can tell that a culture is spiritually imploding when we love material success more than moral success, when we love wealth more than wisdom. That is the spiritual collapse of a culture. And that one ought to provoke us. We ought to look at that and be a little bit nervous. Now, let's see how Christian people ought to respond to something like that, right? And when you see things like that in the news, and pastors go around shaming everybody, look at how Christians should respond to that based on the teachings of Jesus. Because Jesus actually told parables about things like this, about, about scandals and about crisis and about self-righteousness. And it's not what you think. What Jesus taught is not what's taught in most churches today. And and if you read this one, if if you really take this passage that we're going to read to heart today, I think this one might wreck some of us. Because this might actually be the exact opposite of what you thought church was all about. I think if we really take this one in our hearts this morning, if the Holy Spirit really gets in there and stirs this one around, this one might be a game changer for us. Open with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Uh, And we're going to read a passage uh, that's a parable of Jesus, a story that Jesus told to make a point to his followers and disciples. Uh, And this one, I think, was shocking to uh, some of the people uh, around him because they lived in a shame on you kind of culture. They lived in a culture where if people did things that are terrible, the righteous people, the religious people got to say to them, shame on you, you shouldn't do that. And what Jesus establishes in this passage is that shame on you is not a Christian proverb. Shame on you is not a Christian proverb. If you go around to people all the time saying, shame on you, I don't know what you are, but what you are not is a follower of Jesus. Because shame on you is not a Christian proverb. And Jesus, in this passage, does something radically different than what the religious people of his day were expecting. Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 9, listen to the word of God. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else... Jesus told this parable. This is to the shame on you people, he tells us. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Uh, Jerusalem was on a hill, so if you went to the temple, you were always going up. That's why you always hear it say they went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. A Pharisee, again, was a self-righteous religious person in the first century world who knew all the rules, knew everything God had said, made sure they followed all the rules, and then went around saying shame on you to everybody who didn't. The, uh, the Pharisees of the first century world were like Sister Emily, the, the nun who taught in my Catholic high school who, if nothing else, knew that the wrath of God was going to be poured out on teenagers. And this is the one who one day was struck by lightning when she was going across the football field because that was the only way God could get through to her. And uh, she lived, just fine. And uh, so that was the Pharisees. And the tax collector in this parable, tax collectors were hated people because again, they were Jewish people taking money away from Jewish people, stealing some of it for themselves, and then passing the rest on to the Roman Empire that ruled over them. So they were hated by all of their peers. So they're in the temple, two guys, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, people who lie on college applications, people on the wrong side of the abortion issue and the gay marriage issue and those who wear white pants before Memorial Day. That's a stupid rule. Or or even like this tax collector. He says it out loud with that guy right there in the room. Thanks, I'm not like that guy. But the tax collector. Oh, no, he said, "I, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. I follow all the rules. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. He went home justified before God. Justified is an important theological word that the Bible uses. Those of us who just read the book of Romans together recently know the word justified. Justified in the eyes of God means, means right in the eyes of God. When God looks at you, all he sees is what is good about you. That is justified. Uh, justified is kind of like not too long ago, in my house, there's a screen door on the back, and it had, it had been falling apart over years and years and years, and I ignored it, and I ignored it, and finally the top hinge popped, and it hung at a 45-degree angle off the back of my house like the flag off the back of a boat. And my wife said to me, Are you going to fix that? And I said, it's still on. One hinge is just superior to the other. <sighs> right? And, you know, a while later, one of the fans in my kid's bedroom started doing that rattle that fans do when they're older. You know, like it's, like it's kind of flying around. The blades are spinning. It's kind of flying around. And my wife says, um, do you think you're going to fix that? And I said, just tell them not to walk under it when it's on. They can go round. <laughs> right? And then not long after that, one of the toilets in our house, the, this fluid started leaking out from underneath the, the toilet onto the, yeah, onto the floor of the bathroom. And my wife says... Can we pay somebody to fix that? I was like, just leave the window open. It'll evaporate. And I looked into the eyes of, of my loving wife at that point, and I realized I was not justified in her eyes. I was, she, whatever it was she saw, it was not righteousness that coming out of her eyes. So eventually I got around to it, and I fixed the, I fixed the toilet. Said, thank you, YouTube. And, and I fixed the fan, and I fixed the screen door. And my wife saw that, and she said, thank you. That's great. Thank you so much. And I said, thank you, Lord, for not making me like these other husbands who do not fix the toilets in their house and do not know how to fix the screen. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like these others. So justified in the eyes of God. Justified in the eyes of God means God looks at you and goes, that's right, you did it right, good, that's what I wanted. Now look at what Jesus just did. There are two guys standing in the temple here, and one of them is right in the eyes of God and one is not. The one who is right in the eyes of God is humble. The one who is not right in the eyes of God is moral. Do you understand what Jesus just did there? Jesus exalted humility over morality because the Pharisees were doing everything right. I give a 10th to everything. I fast twice a week. I'm Thank you that I'm not messed up like that guy in the back of the room. And the guy who was messed up in the back of the room was humble enough to go, God, just forgive me. And Jesus says, that's the guy who's right in the eyes of God. Do you understand what a mess that was for the first century world? 1,500 years of Jewish tradition and culture was following the law. God has given us commandments and told us what to do. Religious people are people who follow the rules. 1,500 years of that. Parents teaching it to their kids, who taught it to their kids, who taught it to their kids. Follow the rules. Do what God wants. And if you do what God wants, God will bless you. If you do what God wants, God will make rain fall out of the, the sky and land on your crops and grow crops and he'll add goats and sheep to your herds and you'll be, you'll be blessed. Obey God and he will reward you. Disobey God and he will punish you. Disobey God, the rain will not fall and your crops will dry up and you will lose your money and the elastic of your underwear will break and your underwear will be around your ankles and all kinds of bad things will happen if you disobey God. That was the division. And for 1500 years, that is how they knew God. Obey God and he rewards you. Disobey God and he punishes you. Do you understand what Jesus did? Jesus messed all that up. Jesus stood with a woman who is caught in adultery. And the righteous people who for 15 years had been studying the law knew that the law said that woman has to die. And they picked up stones to throw at her. And Jesus put himself between her and them and said, if you're perfect, you throw the first stone. Do you understand? He stood on the side of the cheaters in a culture that only knew obedience to doing things right. He went through a crowd and saw Zacchaeus, a tax collector, who stole money from his own people to make money for himself. He was a cheater. And Jesus said, Zach, I want to have lunch with you today. You and I are going to be friends. I'm going to hang out with you. I want people to see me hanging out with you. And everybody disliked Jesus for doing it. Do you understand why? He was messing up everything they knew about God. He was standing on the side of cheaters, not on the side of the law. He told a parable about uh, uh, one of its most famous parables, a parable, the the title of which has now found its way into American law, the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the most famous of Jesus' parables. We now casually use the term, that guy's a good Samaritan. Samaritans, you know who they were? they were? They were descendants of the same line as the Jewish people. And when the Jewish people were taken off into slavery in Babylon, the Samaritans somehow escaped it and stayed in the land. And so when the Jewish people were set free and came back and found these people, they, the Samaritans said, no, where we're you. We're part of the same family. And the Jewish people said, no way. You didn't go with us, so you're not part of us anymore. And after that, they were hated. They were the wrong ethnic group. They had intermarried. They were the wrong religious group. They didn't have the same beliefs. They were outsiders. And Jesus takes those guys and says, you want to know what it's like to be right in the eyes of God? Be like this Samaritan in this story that I'm telling. Be like this cheater in the story. It could be titled the parable of the good cheater. That's how it would have felt to a first century uh, listener. It's the parable of the good cheater. Do you understand how that messed them up to have 1,500 years of God bless your obedience and punishes your disobedience, and suddenly Jesus comes along, hanging out with all the people that were dangerous to them? Is this like anything you've ever heard in churches before? Because you and I are often inheritors of the culture of the law. Many of us, many of us right here in this room have this, this part wrong. We think that Jesus exists to make us righteous so that we can feel good about ourselves and say shame on you to everybody who's not. And if they are wrong, we better change them real fast so that then they can join our church. Like, if you want... Do you understand, most of us, most Christians in America have this one wrong. And if you get this one right, this isn't going to mess you up. This is going to change your life and your church. What, what Jesus did was kind of like uh, it's kind of like uh, when, my, when my dad taught me how to ride a bike without training wheels. Did your, your parents ever do that for you? Somebody teach you how to ride a bike without training wheels? You're, you're a kid, and you have the bike with training wheels, and you're totally safe. It will not fall over, right, because it's got wheels on both sides, and two and you're fine. And then one day you go out to your perfectly nice bike, and your dad has taken a screwdriver and taken the wheels off the side of the bike. Now, you know what happens when you ride a bike with no training wheels on it? It falls down. Like, you have to have a foot on the ground because it will not stand up like this. It only takes you about a minute to figure out, no, we need something else here. And my dad has removed, it's okay, dad, I forgive you, has removed the things that hold the bike up, right? So I go out there, and my dad says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to hold the back of the bike. I'm going to hold the back of the seat. You're going to start pedaling. I'm going to run along behind you, and then I'm going to let go. And I said, say what now? He said, don't worry about it. I'm going to get, I'm going to get, hold the back of the bike. You're going to start pedaling. And I know it feels like it's going to fall over. It won't. I'm going to let go. You'll stay up. And I said, at the age of six, can we talk to mom about this? Because she, I feel like she has good ideas. She's a little more circumspect than some of us sometimes and cares about whether or not her child lives. And uh, I had a big vocabulary at six. And she, he goes, don't worry about it. I'm going to, I'll run along behind you. I'm going to let go. Are you ready? Get set. And I said, can I have the number for child protective services? And <laughs> so, When you first get on a bicycle on two wheels, it's scary because it doesn't look like it's going to balance, right? It's hard to picture the physics in your mind until you feel it. To a people who know only the culture of the law, grace is that kind of scary. Grace is the thing that you look at and you go, that's not going to balance, that's not going to work. I know the law, it holds me steady. And I, I totally, I totally get it. Because usually the most legalistic people are people who somewhere along life's way, especially when they were young, got hurt by somebody who didn't follow the laws. They got hurt by somebody who didn't follow the rules and crossed lines they should not have crossed. And when that person grows up and comes to discover rules, they love them because the rules are safe. The rules keep things in balance when people want to knock you off. And the, and the rules just feel so good. The Pharisees were a people who probably had a terrible backstory of being hurt and had come to love the safety that they found in the law. And here Jesus is hanging out with adulterers and tax collectors and Samaritans and people who made the culture unsafe. And they looked at Jesus and they said, that's never going to balance. You're going to throw everything off, not just for us, for everybody. Understand, this is exactly what Jesus meant to do. Uh, It's kind of like... uh, imagine a, a, a parent and a kid walking through their neighborhood, and you know how there's always one scary house in the neighborhood? There's always one house where the architects look like they were trying to make a scary face on the front of the house, and the house is just built that way. And there's the scary house, and the people inside seem grouchy, and their dogs out in the yard barking. You can hear them, and there's a tall fence. And, and you know, a little kid, that's a scary thing. Parents walk down the block with this kid and see this house, and they say, no, whatever you do, don't go in that yard. Those dogs are scary. Those people are on registries you don't want to know about. Don't go near that house. And, and so, and and so, they, so the kid grows up scared. Then one day that family, the creepy family with the creepy house, moves away, and they take their scary dogs with them. And the city goes in, and they decide to bulldoze the house, and they put a nice park down with playground equipment, and they knock down the fence. It's a beautiful fence. And then one day the parent walks down the street with a little kid and says, Oh, look, you can go play in that yard now. You can imagine the kid, you know. What a cognitive dissonance that must be. I kind of want to, but I don't think I'm supposed to. That was the first century Jewish people listening to the teachings of Jesus. Oh, that sounds good. Wait, that can't be right. Oh, it looks right. I think I'm told I'm not supposed to be there, right? Deep in their genetic wiring, they knew that was bad. And yet here Jesus is going, no, this is where we belong. We belong in a place where we love people caught in adultery and we love people who are tax collectors and we love Samaritans. This is where we belong. These are my people. These are my friends. Do you understand how disorienting that would have been for the first century world? Do you understand how disorienting that is for us, for we American Christians who like to say, shame on you, when people cheat their way into college, right? It it, it throws everything off. The Apostle Paul used a metaphor just like that in uh, his letter to the Galatians in the Bible, in the New Testament. He says, the law is like a babysitter who watches over you while you're growing up. And it teaches you the rules, and it tells you how to behave. And then one day you became an adult, and the babysitter lets you go. And then you're free. You don't need a babysitter anymore because you're an adult. Paul writes it this way. He says, the law was put into charge, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. And through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. The, the, the law brings death. If we stay trapped in a legalistic framework, we're like somebody who needs a babysitter all their lives. What a scary thing to be free. But that's exactly what Jesus wanted. What separates the legalists from those who live under grace is the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus right in between them. Because if you live by the law, if you live by your own righteousness, you're in trouble. At the cross of Jesus, you can take all the brokenness, all the sinfulness of your life in this world, and leave it at the cross, and then you can go free to grace. What separates the legalists from those who are covered by grace is the cross of Jesus. Let me tell you about admission standards of another kind. Let me tell you about the admission standards to heaven. The Admission standards to heaven work this way. If you are on the side of the law, and you follow all the rules, and you fast twice a week, and you give a tenth, and you love people, and you go build houses in Mexico, and you're a good person, you're the best person anybody's ever met, the admission standards to heaven, the admission rate to heaven is 0%. The admission rate to heaven based on our own good works, even the best of us, is 0%. Nobody gets in that way. Heaven requires perfection, and none of us are qualified. If you're going on the basis of your own good works, you're trying to cheat your way in, and the admission rate is 0%. Jesus Jesus said, "Let's, let's do the admission standards a little bit different. You want scandal, here comes scandal. Look at the admission standards to be a friend of Jesus. To be a friend of Jesus, here's the admission standards. Prostitutes, you're in. Tax collectors, you're in. Cheaters, you're in. People with infectious diseases, you're in. Mentally ill people, you're in. Poor people, you're in. Self-righteous people who have followed all the rules, done everything right their whole lives and are going around telling everybody, shame on you. Mm. Jesus literally says, the prostitutes are gonna get into heaven before you. He didn't say no, he just said back in the line. He's got a lot of other people to deal with before he gets to the self-righteous religious people saying, shame on you. The admission standards to friendship with Jesus are wide and he exalts humility. Over self-righteousness. Uh, the uh, the admission standards to friendship with Jesus should sit on our hearts anytime we feel like I think, I think I messed up too bad this time. I think I, I destroyed I destroyed a family and I could never get that back. I think I've messed up too bad this time. I think I did something that was so offensive that God will not forgive me for it. Something I can't fix or take back. I I I took the life of a child that was not born yet, and how could he ever forgive that? I think I'm not good enough. And and Jesus says to we who live in that kind of brokenness, no, 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 I'm on your side. I love you. Nothing will ever change that. I am here for you. The door is open. Take all of that brokenness, leave it at the cross, and stop trying to prove yourself by works of the law. Just let me love you. So what good is the law then? What good are all those rules? Are we then are we just kind of free to do whatever? Cheat your way into college because it doesn't matter anymore? Of course not. The law works this way. Uh, Pastor Anthony and I were at a, a conference this last week in Palm Desert, a pastors' conference, and uh, so it's a long drive. So we drove kind of fast, and uh, I, I drove kind of fast, and uh, I still feel like it was his fault though. And um, so so uh, we're driving kind of fast on those empty freeways, and you know what you do on those moments where you see a police car parked on the side of the road in the bushes, and you realize. You want fast. You, what do you do? You slam on the brakes, don't you, right? right? And if you realize that you are, you, look, go right to the, you go right to the speedometer to see what you might have said. And if you realize you are over the speed limit, you become a person of prayer at that moment, right? Right? But if you slam on the brakes and you look down, you realize you were already following the law, you go, ah thank you, Lord, for not making me like these other drivers. Like that Porsche driver right there, he's gonna get a ticket, he deserves it. But ah, thank you, Lord, for not making me like them. Right, when you realize you feel good. So this is what the law does. This is what the law does. The law reminds us that there are healthy boundaries set on our life that are good for us. We don't want to be judged by that law, and we should not judge others by that law. But the law was put into place to teach us to live healthy lives. Healthy lives are good things. That's what the law is for. But we don't don't then take the law and go use it to hammer other people. Uh, I remember... A few years ago, meeting a guy who was, uh, it was interesting. He was a middle aged guy, and I met him in the context of this little, little tiny church, and everybody in the church was like 80 years old. And there was this guy who was 40 years younger than all of them. And so I kind of beelined it to him, and I said, um, So you don't quite fit in here. What's, what's the deal? And he said, Well, a few years ago, I went to prison. And so I jumped in, I said, Oh, I get it. And you had a religious conversion, and you happened down the street, and this is a church you happened into. And he said, he said no, I'm, I'm still thinking about the God thing. I'm not quite sure yet. But what I do know is this. When my life fell apart a few years ago, I lost my family. My family left me. And I lost, lost my business colleagues. They all abandoned me. And I lost my social circles. They all left me. And the only people who accepted me were this church. People of this church were the ones who accepted me. And that's what Jesus was trying to do when he told this parable. The church, the church of Jesus, should not be a gathering of shame on you kinds of people. The church should be the place where we gather and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then we should be known for our mercy. Father, may your spirit work in our hearts and in those places where we are broken and afraid, where we we love the law because we are afraid of brokenness, God, heal those deep wounds. Heal those hurts and those memories that haunt us. And God, where we have used the law to shake a finger at others, forgive us for our self-righteousness. God, for those places where we are broken, where we are, where we are breaking laws now, God, teach us to trust that you want healthy lives for us and to leave all that brokenness at the foot of the cross. And then may we, in the name of Jesus, live lives of love and grace. May we, leave, live, may we live lives where we throw our, our arms around adulterers and tax collectors and Samaritans. May we be those who... Love the world in Jesus' name. As we do so, may they see more of you and not us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Instagram or Facebook at Real life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit Reallife.LA and tap Give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.